0: Welcome to episode 41 of the Hollywood and Toto podcast. This week we're speaking with Michael Ramirez, the Pulitzer Prize winning cartoonist, featured in the Daily Signal and Weekly Standard. His stuff is brilliant. And the fact that he attacks the headlines from the right? Well, it's both shocking and pretty darn refreshing. But before our chat, I want to talk about award season. This time of the year, a slow but steady flow of screeners arrive at my mailbox. These are DVDs and... Once in a blue, blue moon, a Blu ray of the movies that the studios think could be award worthy this year. You got documentaries, Oscar bait movies, and once in a while you get a curveball or two, thinking, really? They sent me that movie? They really think there's, there's some worth there in award season. But you know what? Hope springs eternal and you never know. And of course, the studios really want me to watch every single one and take copious notes. Now, I have to say, I can't watch them all. I don't know who could. I'd have to lock myself away in a hotel and just watch them over and over and over again just to get through them all. There are a lot of movies that come my way. Now, obviously, I watch as many as I can. I do the best I can. And I try not to re-watch films I've seen already because that's going to take away from other movies that really deserve a chance. But I have to say, given that and given the anticipation as a movie fan, this year feels fear a little different than previous years. For one thing, it's the obvious political climate. Hollywood's hatred of all things Trump kind of casts a different light on the season. There's there's a pall over things now that just feels exhausting, and I I don't think I'm alone. I really worry that politics are going to play a much bigger role in the awards season than they should, whether it's which films get nominated and which films get left over, the uh, the comments from the stars as they go out and promote their films on the press circuit. Another change is here. The lineup of movies themselves, yes, you've got a lot of the Oscar-bait films coming our way, You can expect that. But there's also a lot of movies that just feel like they should have come out in the summertime. I'm thinking about Blade Runner 2049 or Thor Ragnarok, Justice League, The Last Jedi. You know, I'm looking forward to all these movies, but there's a chance they could steamroll over the prestige pictures that are heading our way. They may suffer as a result of the box office. I would not be surprised. It's kind of like how it right now is just taking up all the oxygen in Hollywood and soaking up all the money, apparently, because it's just making an absolute killing at the box office. I think the most important factor for me looking at the films coming soon is can they make amends for a really terrible year in movies? Now the Summer Box Office was disastrous, but the quality was bad too. There weren't many great films and only a handful of very good films. I'll throw Wonder Woman and Baby Driver in there in that particular group. But this was just been a bad year for the for movies in general. And I have to say I've seen a lot of top 10 lists and best of 2017 so far. I don't even know how I'd begin to make such a list. I'd have one or two films at best. It's been really rough sledding, and all I can do is go back to TV and watch these great Netflix shows and other product there and think, boy, I just wish the movies were that good. But, hey, maybe it'll happen. Maybe this this fall lineup will be everything that they're promising and more we shall see.
1: You're listening to my daddy's podcast. He lets me binge-boss with him.
0: This week's hit tip of the week is a little different than usual. I've been so <laughs> slammed with projects related to Hollywood Toto.com, My viewing suffered as a result. I'm not catching up on the movies like I've been in recent weeks, so I apologize for that. But I've got a tip I'm going to pass along all the same. It's from a friend of mine, a good friend, whose taste I trust in movies. And when he says something's good, I usually take, a, I usually take advantage of it and check it out myself. This one's called Nocturama, and it's a very unique French thriller that's available now on Netflix. The movie begins as we track a group of young people milling about the streets of Paris, going on the subway, acting a little bit odd. Something is amiss, and we soon learn that they're up to no good. They've planted a bomb, maybe more, around the city, and we don't know if this is a flashback, the present time, what's going on. But, of course, we get to know more and more as the story unfolds. Now, this is the kind of movie that kind of sets up my spider senses, thinking... Are they going to be sympathetic to these terrorists? What's going to be the spin here? But my friend is a rock-rib conservative, so I trust him when he says it's a good film. It doesn't really take sides. It's more sober, more analytical. It lets the viewer judge for themselves, and I, I like that approach. So All that means, I'm going to be checking out Nocturama very soon, and I suggest you do the same. Now, before this week's HitCast interview, I wanted to quickly plug my Rage Against the PC Machine. It's my 1st ebook, and it features stories from stars who don't kowtow to the PC police. And how refreshing is that? You can find the book at Amazon.com, and it features interviews with people like Wyatt Russell, son of Kurt and Goldie, and also Mike Burbiglia, a really funny stamp comedian who may be left of center, but he's pretty aghast at the PC police as well. Check it out. I think you'll get a fun read, and you'll be supporting Hollywood and Toto and the HitCast at the same time. You're listening to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. Now it's time for my chat with Michael Ramirez. Michael is one of the best editorial cartoonists around today, period. He's a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner whose work can be found at the Weekly Standard and Daily Signal. He's the author of two books, including Give Me Liberty or Give Me Obamacare, and Everyone Has the Right to My Opinion. I would say, as a former art major, I'm blown away by his work. I've been a fan of his for a long, long time, and I've been trying to get him on this podcast for, well, ever since I started episode one. He's here now, and I think you're going to really enjoy this chat. Here's my interview with Michael Ramirez. First of all, thank you, Michael, for joining the show. I had read that you were studying to be a surgeon early on in your life, and you kind of, I guess, veered dramatically to political cartooning, and I'm kind of curious— what happened at that? Was there sort of a, a series of events that led up to that, or was it sort of a an aha moment you had in your college days?
1: Well, you know, it was more of an aha moment. All, all my brothers and sisters are doctors, and their spouses are doctors, uh, so I'm sort of the black sheep of the family. <laughs> I wanted to be a cardiovascular surgeon um, because I have very steady hands, and we all love science. I think our our parents always uh, formulated this, this belief in us that we ought to do something that makes a good, Good contribution to the universe, and um, you know we just loved uh, science and we loved medicine. And you uh, know, I think uh, of about uh, Barack Obama getting the Nobel Peace Prize for doing absolutely nothing. I always joke that I should get a Nobel Peace Prize for for all the lies I've saved by being a political cartoonist <laughs> instead of being a doctor.
0: <laughs>
1: but that that's where my interest, uh, you know, that's where it lied when I was in. Um, College, and you know, I didn't really do any political cartoons until I started working for the uh, the college newspaper, and even then, initially, I was a writer rather than a um, a, a cartoonist. I, I loved political cartoons. We read two uh, newspapers a day: the the L.A. Times and the Orange County Register uh, at breakfast. It was kind of a morning practice with me and my dad, and we'd swap newspapers in the middle of breakfast. And so I was exposed to Paul Conrad, who was very liberal with the L.A. Times. My friend Jeff—actually, uh, Paul was a friend of mine as well— Jeff McNally, um, who at the time was with, with the Virginia newspaper, the Times-Dispatch, I think. And so I got a sense of editorial cartooning from those two figures, but I never thought about doing it for a living. I mean, uh, I wanted to get a real job. <laughs>
0: Now, I'm imagining that you were still drawing all the time as a younger person, or, I mean, you didn't just pick up a pencil and say, hey, maybe I should try this, and and voila, your talents were there. What was your artistic background at that point?
1: You know, Christian, it's just such an odd thing to me that people can't draw, because I've always had this ability Uh um, to uh, be able to look at something and be able to recreate it, you know, just with a pencil. I mean, I could draw anything. And it just seems such a foreign idea that people can't do it or didn't have the ability to do it. And and honestly, um, you know, I really, I was really into drawing when I was younger, when I was a little kid, up until about the sixth grade. And then we had a uh, an art contest uh, in my school, and uh, I drew um, you know the uh, Thinker, uh, Degas uh, the, I'm not Degas, but Rodin's Thinker uh, as a pencil sketch. And I was sort of disqualified because they didn't think that I drew it. They thought that my parents had drawn it. Oh, wow. Too good for a kid. And and that that kind of had an impact on me as far as art goes. And uh, part of it was I I started picking up surfing later on. And I think that kind of overrode any kind of artistic desire. Mm -hmm. But um, I've always had the ability, you know, I'd see a teacher and uh, I'd draw a funny caricature of him in class. I'm passing around. Um, <laughs> but I never thought about doing political cartooning for for a living. Not until when I was in college, I was filing a story uh, with a new university newspaper. And uh, there was a student election that was going on. And I had taken, uh, I was a triple major, uh, biological science, fine arts studio painting and art history. And the only reason why I took the latter two was because my, my brother and sister who had preceded me through college and were in medical school had advised me that in order to get into medical school, you need a more well-rounded curriculum because they're looking for something different than this sort of stale bio-sci student. So I just took those latter two uh, uh, degrees so that I could get into medical school.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And so um, I was uh, going into the newspaper office to file a cartoon, and I was carrying a painting in. And uh, my editor said, I didn't know you could draw. Why don't you do a, a cartoon on the student election that's going on? And so I, I I tried to interview all the candidates. None of them really had a good platform. And I ended up making fun of all of them. <laughs> and when the cartoon was published in the paper, uh, we had uh, two days' worth of protests over this cartoon. Oh, had, my goodness. I had uh, basically violated <laughs> everybody's sensibilities. And I came to the realization at that moment. In fact, I got I got uh, charged by the student body council to come before them to apologize to the school. And I came to the realization that uh, all this time I'd been, you know, um, writing these hard hitting editorials and these uh, these newspaper articles, and nobody really cared. You draw one picture, and everybody hates you.
0: What you know, What was in the picture that great- <laughs> it drove them crazy?
1: Oh, you know, I, I just sort of made fun of the uh, so the sorority president for and the fraternity president for just being uh, superficially uh, involved in politics, not really having a good platform. I, I made actually make fun of all, f- all four individuals <laughs> for being uh, platformless, for for basically running for office on the scope of being at a, po- a popularity contest rather than anything substantial. And so I offended everybody's sensibilities. Got in front of the student council, and they said, "You need to be educated. You should, you should apologize to the school." And I said, "Thank you for noticing. I'm actually pursuing three majors, but I appreciate you uh, your concern." And that sort of launched my editorial cartooning career.
0: My goodness! Now, but this is before it was the that. Snowflake Generation. That was pretty mild stuff you were throwing. <laughs> I know, I know, I know.
1: It's 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 incomprehensible, uh-huh. but. Uh, in today's day, you know, anyone can be a, uh, any kind of political satirist whatsoever, because everything offends everybody's sensibilities. But it was it was in it, w- it was in my junior year when um, this, this local newspaper had hired me, and, and I had this long stretch between you know Bio one hundred and one and and uh, organic chemistry where I would just go down to the uh, beach and go surfing. This local newspaper, Newport Beach, uh, the Newport Daily News. Uh, 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 the Ensign, Newport Ensign had offered me a job and I could whip out a cartoon in half an hour and get $50, which was a lot at the time, and and, uh, sort of make fun of what was going on and uh, there was an incident where this this man got pulled over by the Newport Beach police Uh, he was arrested for drunk driving, was not allowed a phone call and it turned out he was a city councilman who didn't drink and so I drew this cartoon where I had this guy hogtied on the hood of a police car with a shoe wedged in his mouth. And the arresting officer was explaining to the uh, the sergeant, uh, I was merely reinforcing his constitutional right to remain silent. (laughs) And when that cartoon hit, the uh, police chief was so mad, he came down to the office. He yelled at the editor, yelled at the publisher, and then he tried to find out where I lived. And then suddenly I realized what a profound impact these drawings have. And I think that was the minute I fell in love with political cartooning and actually understood the potential uh, for it to have an impact on on our society.
0: Wow. Now, I'm a recovering art major. I've got three art degrees I don't use. I struggle to fulfill my lifelong ambition. And then I realized, hey, I think I can write and make a living as opposed to this. I'm, well, I'm sort of curious, just from my own background, how did you develop your style? It's very distinct. It's very unique. It's very you. But I've often struggled to find a, a sort of a cartooning style, for lack of a better phrase. Did it happen organically for you? Did you kind of work at it? I, I mean, this may be 20 years ago now or maybe even more, but I was kind of curious, how did that develop?
1: You know, I think it was an org- organic evolution. Um, and, and good for you. You're actually a much wiser man than I am by by going down the uh, the road as a writer, <laughs> <laughs> than a political cartoon. I
0: didn't have a choice. So uh, <laughs> that's all.
1: <laughs> you, you know, um, I, I really look at political cartooning less as an art form and more as a journalistic endeavor. And uh, because I, I think the most important element of a political political cartoon is the message, substantive message. I'm a real big believer. And you know, this isn't a humorous anecdote about political events. It's a substantive commentary on what's going on. Or Uh, you know, a projection, a vision of where where these issues lie and their effect on society. So I'm a big believer in that. Now, that being said, since you're an art major, you probably took the same art history courses that I did. Each generation has, as an artist, has its uh, sort of influences. And and in my case, uh, you know, my two major influences were Paul Conrad and Jeff McNally. Mm -hmm. And I think those subconsciously probably entered my mind. Now, when I... When I started drawing, I just drew the only way that I I knew how to, which was uh, very realistically. Um, But that didn't really translate well in political cartoons. So I knew I had to cartoon it up somewhere. And it was a difficult process going from realism into kind of making these ballooning figures, uh, you know, the dramatic features of of, uh, caricatures where you kind of stretch faces to make them convey a certain point of view, like uh, what I mean by that is like when you look at Richard Nixon uh, prior to Watergate and then the evolution of his caricature throughout that, uh, you know, that tenuous uh, uh, period of his administration, he gets darker, more foreboding. Mm -hmm. It's all reflected in the caricature. The caricature is part of the dynamic of the cartoon to emphasize your point. And so um, it took me a while to sort of get, That down without without it just seeming weird, that I was drawing these people but not really drawing them realistically. So um, I think that was just you know I I look at it in in my approach to anything like what is the best way to effectively use that utilize that tool, and so when I think of editorial cartooning, I think of it as sort of like the um, you know the Super Bowl ads that you see. You've got basically On television, Mm. you see five, you get five seconds to capture the viewer's attention, five seconds to deliver the pitch in whatever way in a dramatic illustrative flair you can utilize to get people's attention. That becomes the best way to uh, uh, the best methodology for for doing the uh, process. Gotcha. And so that's where my uh, my uh, style really came in. I know that people are drawn to the visual medium. And they like really kind of detailed illustrations, things that are interesting to look at. Be- people basically know that I'm a, a right-wing knuckle-dragging <laughs> Neanderthal. Um, but you need to do something that will spark their attention and draw them into into the illustration. Once you do that, you know, that's the bait and the trap. Then you've got them. They've looked at the cartoon. You delivered your point of view. You've done your job.
0: Uh-huh. This, here's the hacky question. Is it easier to come up with your cartoons today than it was maybe 10 or 20 years ago, given all that's going on and all the uh, the headlines, the craziness? It just seems like it It seems on paper it would be great fodder for you. But is it that easy or does it actually make it more complicated because they're so outlandish what's going on?
1: You know, it's a combination of both. Sometimes it's, it's easy. I kind of joke that I have the best... Um, now the best writers working for me <laughs> in the business are called the uh, politicians, and that these days uh, it's much more like uh, stenography than anything <laughs> creative. But on some days, the things, especially with this administration, things are so ridiculous that it's harder. It's harder to to um, sort of twist them and make them funny because in reality they're funnier than anything you can think of. Yeah. And that makes it difficult.
0: When you think about your work, I mean, there are some editorial cartoonists who have a, a, a more casual style. You kind of mentioned that you were more reali- realism-based. What's sort of the time period? Let's just say you just sit down at your desk and, you, and it's time to, to create one of your pieces. I'm looking at you kind of nuanced coloring and the strokes are sophisticated. The detail is precise. Can you give us a rough idea how long it takes you to make a panel?
1: Oh, sure. It takes me about an hour to draw it out uh-huh. um, because I, I have two versions. I have a black and white version and a color version um, because newspapers take them in different uh, different ways. Um, it takes me about an hour, an hour and a half to draw the black and white version, about an hour, an hour and a half to colorize them. Uh-huh. You know, one great thing is when I was uh, co-managing the editorial page at Investor's Business Daily, uh, my schedule was pretty much I'd wake up at 5, start uh, reading Resources, watching the news at every half hour to see what was sort of on the edge of the American uh, consciousness uh, as far as what was going on in the news and politics. Uh, I'd read my different newspapers and I'd prep for my editorial meetings. And then, um, you know, I'd have about two hours for the editorial meeting from 8 to 10. And then from 10 to 11, I'd talk to uh, some of the writers and, uh, you know, some of my sources. And then I really had. I'd have a quick lunch. and'd really have from about noon to three to get something done because mm-hmm. the you know, ibd was a was an economic newspaper, so we we went to to bed when the bell closed on the Dow. So it really trained me to do things very quickly. And thank goodness for Photoshop. <laughs> I mean back in the old days, you know it would take hours to colorize. now you can do it in in just a flash. I mean there have been times where I could turn a cartoon around in about an hour.
0: Gotcha. You've won two Pulitzers, and I've read that you've had really good relationships with all of your peers, right and left and center. Has that changed in recent months or years with the age of Trump and the fact that we're more divisive now? I I feel like in other arenas, even where people once got along, they're not getting along anymore. Have you found that, or or are people on the left still appreciating your work and and respecting you as they they should?
1: Well, you know— I actually have disconnected with the editorial cartooning community uh, pretty much. We we have an organization called the National. It's called the American Association of Editorial Cartoonists, of which I was a president at one point. Uh, I think there's been a generational shift, um, and, and it's just in in behavior. You know, it, it's just the basic things your parents should have told you or taught you about being polite, about allowing other people to to express their opinions. Um, and, and a shift in political cartooning in general. You know, um, back in its heyday, it was a great instrument of journalism. It uh, it, it was uh, you know something that that uh, utilized also all the best elements of journalism, uh, defining an issue with a message cutting to put to the point, mm-hmm. and that message being the most profound element of editorial cartooning. Today, it's more like this. Uh, It's like the, uh, uh, you know, the kind of free-form political discussions that go on as entertainment. Uh, Like the Tonight Show monologue. There's nothing really deep about it. It's just to make you laugh. Uh Um, I'm not a big champion of that. I think editorial cartooning ought to be be more uh, deeper than that. Uh, It it ought to have a a message. Um, You know, it should seize the reader's attention. Um, so as that evolution of editorial cartooning has come about, I've sort of, uh, gone off on my own mm-hmm. to do my own thing because I have a real, you know, and not to say that the other methodology is right or wrong. Uh, I just don't uh, follow that. I think it ought to, there's a reason why we get Pulitzers because it should be a vehicle of journalism. Right. And so that's the first thing that, uh, I think about.
0: Uh, you once said conservatives have to gain a foothold in the three main pillars of society education, pop culture, and the media. From your perspective, how are conservatives doing on the pop culture front?
1: They're doing horrible. Uh, They're doing horribly. You know, it's it's funny. um, Mark Joseph, my friend, who uh, is producing the new big-screen Reagan movie, uh, we always get together, and we we try to push these um, political leaders into that arena because popular culture has such a huge effect. When you think about, let's say... um, you know, the the homosexual wedding debate, uh, I think Friends, Will and Grace, television shows like that had a much more profound impact than anything that was done really in the political arena. Yeah, Modern Family, too. So. Yes, and and uh, you could see this saturated throughout po- popular culture. And I think uh, you know, liberals and progressives have been very, very smart in engaging that and taking over those industries, you know, television, movies. And the sad thing about it is conservatives have a great inroad there that they can make if they just adjusted for it and invested in it. Uh, when you think about the uh, the movies that sell the most, that do the best, the television shows that are most popular, these are mostly family-oriented shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we, we don't have enough conservatives to engage on that level. The, the the end result in those three, what I call the three pillars of... of um impact uh education which is profoundly generationally changing our culture by uh f- sort of spoon-feeding this progressive liberal thought and making it you know revising history and making it part mm-hmm. of the this person that we're educating to be a future citizen impacting the way they think uh really filling them with all these different ideas Uh, And that being, uh, once again, impressed upon them through uh, higher education, colleges and universities, where they specifically want a certain agenda pounded into your head so that uh, you think that these are the truths. Using popular culture to reinforce these ideas uh, and saturating everything that we look at, advertisements, uh, television, movies, podcasts, uh, Internet, uh, reinforcing these these progressive ideas, and then the media, which is supposed to be an objective referee but is not, pursuing the same agenda, and validating these ideas and saying that they're the truth. These three things are shaping America as as it is today, and that's why we see this massive generational shift, where even cutting off the a uh, debate by saying there's just there's these political absolutes. Um, because they know they, they will lose the debate if they engage in the debate. Those sort of notions, I mean, back in the, back in my generational day, any uh, belief to cut off freedom of speech was looked down upon. Now it's part of the progressive society. Yeah. And I, These things are all generationally changing us and changing America forever. And that, to me, is the biggest danger. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's bad enough that politics has become uh, sort of entertainment on a superficial level. But now, generationally, the foundation of our beliefs have shifted because they've brainwashed these next generations uh, through these progressive ideas.
0: Yeah, it's it's true. And I the fact that Hollywood has been so silent about that free speech dampening, uh, clamping down is, has been the most disappointing to me. Michael, before we let you go, I just want to ask a quick question, which we ask all the guests of the HitCast. What are you watching these days? What are you reading? A, anything new sort of on your iPod as far as music goes? Or what can you recommend to us?
1: Well, you know, um, of course, I, I, I'm in a band, so we uh, we play a lot of charity events, and uh, so I'm always listening to the radio, um, listening to uh, you know what's new out there. Uh, I, I'm I, I used to have serious Radio, but uh, I I just shut it off because it seemed like there was as much talking in between songs back then, and sort of these little advertisements as there was on free radio. Um and now with of course with Apple you can uh, you can get whatever tunes you like and I like I like a broad spectrum of music I like everything from rock and roll to uh, you know classical to jazz fusion. Um as far as uh taking in information to prepare you for the day, I think that you know I always one you should get the Claremont Review of books. I mean, that will really give you a lot of depth and in uh, sort of the literary world and what's going on on a deeper level in mm-hmm. on, on the political reign. I like ricochet.com. Um, you know, they have a great podcast. My friend Andrew Malcolm's podcast is great. I love hot air. Um, I, uh, you know, uh, um, the Powerline blog is fantastic. Yeah, you're hitting all my sweet spots. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, of course, I, I read, uh, you know, four papers a day. I read the New York Times. I read the the Journal the L.A. Times and the Orange County Register. Um, I think you get a good balance between what's sort of going on politically from uh, sort of the dynamics of those different editorial pages. You, of course, have to look at Drudge every morning because that seems to be the launching point for uh, news networks as far as the uh, main topics that people seem to talk about Um, seem to be covered in Drudge. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, I look at everything. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I'm one of those people. I love uh, journalism because I have an endless fascination with how everything works. I've got this curiosity that just cannot be cured. I want to know how it works, who's saying what, what's going on at all times. So I will just sort of scan the news and just uh, keep going. I mean, that, that to me is the biggest tool of the trade of political cartooning mm-hmm. is information. The more information you have, the easier it is to do the job. Yeah. Of course, I like Mark Levin, too. Uh, Mark, uh, I think, uh, is, is pretty brilliant. And my friend Rush Limbaugh, of course, when I get a chance, i listen to Rush. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, I also like to go to, over to MSNBC and do a little opposition research, <laughs> see what's going on. I, you know, I'm a big believer in covering all bases. I think you ought to have a broader view of the issues and a deeper view of the issues uh, because these things are very important. When you think of the dynamics of a self-governing democratic republic— our job as constituents is to be informed.
0: Yeah, and I, I suspect your your work is all the better for it, and I wish more people would sort of take in a different variety of sources. But uh, Well, Michael, thank you so much. Michael Ramirez, a great editorial cartoonist. I've been reading your stuff for years. I really appreciate you taking the time. Your website is michaelpramirez.com, and you got a couple books that people can check out to kind of sample all the great stuff you do. Give Me Liberty or Give Me Obamacare with a forward by Vice President Dick Cheney. And also, Everyone Has a, has the Right to My Opinion with a forward by Bill Bennett. And you can follow Michael on Twitter at RamirezTunes. So check him out. He's everywhere. And of course, at The Daily Signal as well for his most up-to-date stuff. Michael, thank you so much. A real treat to speak to you. And uh, maybe we can chat with you again down the road.
1: Sounds great. Thanks, Chris.
0: Well, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out HollywoodandToto.com for both the show notes and, of course, the latest entertainment news. Please follow me at Twitter, at HollywoodandToto. And we'd love it if you leave a podcast review over at iTunes. See you next week. This episode is sponsored by Schwans.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question.
1: D.C. police are arresting drunk and drug drivers. Drive sober or get pulled over. Message from the District Department of Transportation and Metropolitan Police Department.